what is the difference between type 1 and type 2 diabetes? When type 2 diabetes is the one most people probably think about, about 90 to 95% of those living with diabetes right now have that form of diabetes. That's usually brought on by genetic and lifestyle factors, ultimately increasing body size, usually through uh, increases in adipose tissue, so fat mass. When I first learned about ketones, it was a side product, it was a byproduct of diabetes. It was a product that no, you know, the cells do not want. It just happens to be there and if it's too much, it's detrimental to health and people might die from it. And because, in, and actually this happened to me when I was diagnosed uh, a little over 16 years ago, when I was, I didn't know it, I was super fatigued, I was drinking lots of water. Before I knew it, what was happening is my body was very rapidly destroying the beta cells that produced insulin and my glucose levels were becoming very high and amongst all the chaos that was happening within my body, ultimately I was becoming more and more insulin deficient. Most cases of type 2 diabetes are associated with also obesity, but that's not the case with type 1 diabetes. My expertise was in type 2 diabetes, so a lot of people on my social media and uh, podcasts and comments, they ask, okay, you know, as a type 2 diabetic, what do I do to reverse my insulin resistance or increase my insulin sensitivity? And most of the time, you know, we have seen so many studies that exercise has shown to increase and also training your body to all 8 billion of us are doing metabolism at all times. This show is about learning what metabolism is, how it affects you in every way possible, from mood and mental state to performance and energy. We are all about fine-tuning the human experience for you to achieve the best self you can be. And if you are someone who loves science, curious to know how your body works and how to optimize it, then you are in the right place. This is the HVMN Podcast. In this episode, we have Dr. Andrew Kutnick, who is a research scientist at Sensum Diabetes Research Institute, currently investigating the role of therapeutic culturally tailored lifestyle interventions and carbohydrate restriction in both diabetes management and prevention, as well as exploring therapeutic options that regulate the multi-system impacts of glycemia and hyperinsulinemia. Andrew is also a patient with type 1 diabetes, which drove his passion to understand and leverage lifestyle factors to improve outcomes in patients living with metabolic diseases and disorders. In this episode, we talked about the metabolism of type 1 and 2 diabetes, their differences, and the types of different lifestyle interventions that are effective in treating these diseases. We also spoke about the popular GLP-1 drug that is widely used to treat diabetes and obesity nowadays. So stay tuned and enjoy this episode. And we have Dr. Andrew Kutnick here today on the HVMN podcast. Thank you so much, Andrew, for coming on. Welcome. Thank you so much, Lad. I appreciate it. It's good to, good to see you again. Yeah, good to see you again. Um, as for context, you know, Andrew and I, we met about, what, three, four years ago now. Um, we worked together on our $6 million SDTR contract with the DOD. And um, we work on various other projects together and now hopefully uh, embarking on more research collaborations together. So, Andrew, I'll let you introduce yourself uh, and tell us a little bit more about your background and, and what, what do you do? I appreciate it. Uh, I am a research scientist at Sansum Diabetes Research Institute in Santa Barbara, California. Uh, uh, previously, before becoming here, uh, I focused, I got my degree in exercise physiology, bachelor's degree in that, started research at that point, uh, ultimately transitioned to University of South Florida College of Medicine uh, in the metabolic medicine lab, where I trained and also learned uh, how to evaluate uh, ketogenic diets or ketosis, um, developing novel formulations, and then applying them ultimately to understand if they do or don't apply. And if so, what do they do in the context of disease, preclinical models, I'm trying to understand a lot about neurological disorders and also things about tissue-specific changes like muscle changes uh, when you administer exogenous ketone bodies in, in disease contexts. Ultimately, I transitioned to the Institute for Human and Machine Cognition, where Lat, me and you met and worked together for a period of time, uh, studying the impact of exogenous ketones in various domains relevant for the military. Uh, during this entire time, though, all the way back to the University of South Florida, I had been working on a disease that I'm very, very uh, passionate about for a a slightly selfish reason. I personally have type 1 diabetes and I have for over 16 years. This is a disease where your body no longer produces insulin. And as a result, you're constantly playing your body's own, let's say, thermostat for uh, glucose control on a day in and day out basis, often meal by meal. And so as a result, um, I had an opportunity 
to shift my life focus to, to something I'm very passionate about and focus primarily what I do here at Sansom uh, to focus on the impact of nutrition and metabolic diseases, including type 1 diabetes, but also obesity and prediabetes, as well as type 2 diabetes. And the main outcome that ultimately is the number one cause of death in people with my disease and related diseases, which is cardiovascular disease, uh, looking at cardiometabolic endpoints, meaning the interaction between metabolism and how we change metabolism and ultimately uh, cardiovascular uh, outcomes. And uh, that's that's what I focus on now and uh, what I do day in and day out. And it's uh, it's a dream. Yeah. Uh, you know, that both the, the diabetes and, and the cardiovascular side of things, um, there's something that's very close to my to, to my heart because my mom's side has has high prevalence of diabetes and my dad died of stroke and had heart heart attack before right so that was why I got into my PhD um, research which was type two diabetic um, heart metabolism uh, especially in hypoxia now let's <clears throat> just uncover a little bit on the basics just for for people to understand. Um, what is the difference between type 1 and type 2 diabetes and how does the metabolism differ between those two different um, diabetes? Yeah, so in type 2 diabetes is the one most people probably think about and uh, are aware of because about 90 to 95% of those living with diabetes right now have that form of diabetes. That's usually brought on by genetic and lifestyle factors, ultimately increasing uh, body size, usually through uh, increases in adipose tissue, so fat mass. Uh, as well as elevations and other markers such as lipids. But the main factor that ultimately leads to what we know in the context of diabetes, which is defined by the elevation in glucose level in the blood, uh, is the insulin resistance observed in type 2 diabetes. Um, now, we know that in type 2 diabetes, you can see observations of reduced insulin sensitivity of about 50% compared to their controls. And that's really, really defines that disease, is the resistance to insulin that ultimately causes higher insulin levels uh, peripheral uh, insulin, hyperinsulinemia, and ultimately higher glucose levels simultaneously. Type 1 diabetes, the disease I live with, um, and affects about 8 million, a little over 8 million people, and, and will grow to about double that uh, here shortly by 2040 or 2050. So, a growing prevalence in this disease as well as, as, well as type 2. Um, in fact, we'd expect these populations in type 1 and type 2 to uh, double by. Um, to over 1 billion people worldwide soon. Um, type 1 diabetes is largely defined by a disease that's an absence of insulin. So there's an autoimmune attack that ultimately uh, attacks the pancreatic beta cells, which produce insulin. So we no longer have the same capacity to produce insulin. And insulin's really, the beta cells in the body really help regulate glucose levels. So as glucose levels go up in the blood, for someone like LAD or some of the people who are listening who don't have type 1 diabetes, assuming you don't have type 2, glucose levels go up, let's say, as a response to, like, say, eating carbohydrates. Well, your body will detect that elevation in the beta cells and ultimately produce and release insulin rapidly. I mean, we're talking minutes uh, into the blood's hepatic portal vein and correct that. Where in type 1, that that physiology, that biology is, is absent. And as a result, patients are uh, insulin deficient. So the, the ultimately leading to higher and higher glucose levels until you apply exogenous insulin. Despite applying exogenous insulin, patients still have about the same level of glucose elevations as type 2. Now, these two diseases are largely defined by, in type 2, insulin resistance leading to high glucose levels. But you have other things like genetic and lifestyle factors, increased adiposity, high lipid levels, high insulin resistance, and high glucose. Whereas in type 1 diabetes, it's insulin absence, ultimately leading to higher glucose levels, despite applying exogenous insulin to help manage it. So there's a lot of the main overlap there is obviously the elevated glucose levels. Um, but there's some interesting context in type one that's worth discovering and going into if you're interested in, uh, about insulin resistance as well in this disease. I was um, going to ask, do type one diabetic individuals develop insulin resistance given that they are? So one of the theories of why type two diabetic individuals develop insulin resistance is because of the uh, constant hyperinsulinemia and the constant exposure to high insulin that causes the cells to basically kick off a insulin resistance mechanism to ensure that you know not too much glucose is going in and you know they can't store anymore do people with type 1 diabetes also experience something similar? Yes, they actually do, but not for the same reason. So in type 2 diabetes, you have an abundance of insulin because of the resistance. But 
in normal physiology, when insulin is released from the pancreatic beta cells, it passes through the liver and the liver snags up a lot of that insulin. So the first pass metabolism snags that and ultimately you have a lot less insulin reaching the peripheral uh, vasculature. And type 1 diabetes, because the way it's administered, like right now I'm wearing uh, an Omnipod on the back of my arm, it's going into my arm, okay? So it's actually going through my adipose tissue and ultimately reaching my circulation. Once it reaches my circulation, it's not already in the periphery. Now it passes through the liver, but it's about 2.5 to three times as much insulin and someone with type 1 diabetes in the vasculature than someone without type 1 diabetes. So they've actually studied this, I think it was DeFranza, who was the first to discover this in the 19, early 1980s, I think 1982, discovered that both type 1 and type 2 diabetes have the same degree of insulin resistance. But the mechanism by how it's happening is, is entirely different. Um, whereas this is due to where it's being administered in the body, despite not necessarily having more in the whole body, you're just having a lot more in the peripheral vasculature, which is a, a large part of where the cardiovascular risk may accumulate. So you do have about a 50% reduction in insulin sensitivity in type one diabetes, despite not having the genetic and, and lifestyle factors, despite not having the increased adiposity and, uh, in, or increased lipids. Um, so yes, there is insulin resistance, something that a lot of people don't appreciate about type one diabetes. And admittedly, I didn't for a long period of time, I was hyper-focused on glucose, but insulin resistance has a clear impact on cardiovascular disease long-term and is an important thing to consider in any treatment or uh, approach towards managing this disease. Do you know what? Um, last episode, um, I believe I talked about um, the first OGTT that I've done, um, oral glucose tolerance test. I've never done those. And by looking at the um, glucose level, I was perfectly fine because my glucose didn't go beyond 99. Um, and then it started going down to 75 and then back to, and then it went into hypo. And then when they measured the insulin, the insulin went up during 99. And then even when it's down at 75, it was still high up. And then obviously went back to baseline, but I was down in hypoglycemia. Do you think in that case is a, a, a slight case of insulin resistance? There is some evidence that people, as they start to developing into uh, some people with obesity or prediabetes, as they develop into type two diabetes, there's a phenomenon called reactive uh, hypoglycemia to an oral glucose tolerance test. Um, although it's hard to really say that is characteristic per se of the disease itself, um, but it is something that some individuals do observe. But uh, uh, that's about as far as I can say on that. Mm. Um, but yeah, it, it's observed in some individuals. In fact, we see it sometimes in some of the studies we do for oral glucose tolerance tests to evaluate someone's baseline phenotype. Yeah, I mean, I'm I'm always very cautious about um, biomarkers like that, as well as my you know lifestyle behaviors, ch uh, you know choices, because at the end of the day, I know that I'm predisposed um, genetically. While we can't say genetic is the main cause of obesity or the main cause of type two diabetes we can certainly say it contributes towards the development and the progression of the disease. Uh, and I want people to know that a big, a big part of what contributes to it would also be life, uh, lifestyle choices and factors. And this is what we're here to talk about today as well. And Andrew is you know, an expert when it comes to using um, lifestyle intervention to treat these diseases. So you know, when I first learned about ketones, it was a side product. It was a byproduct of diabetes. It was a product that no, you know, the cells do not want. It just happens to be there. And if it's too much, it's detrimental to health and people might die from it. And it's, 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 a, it's a condition called diabetic ketoacidosis. And now people are using ketones or keto diet to treat type 2 diabetes and reverse type 2 diabetes. Can you talk a little bit about, you know, how, how does that come into the picture? Yeah, so uh, you definitely uh, completely on point here. In fact, that uh, type one diabetes is actually where ketone bodies got a bad rap um, because, in, and actually, this happened to me when I was diagnosed uh, a little over sixteen years ago. When I was, I didn't know it. I was super fatigued. I was drinking lots of water. Um, before I knew it, what was happening is my body was very rapidly destroying the beta cells that produced insulin, and my glucose levels were becoming very high. And amongst all the chaos that was happening within my body. Um, ultimately I was becoming more and more insulin deficient when I got into, uh, the hospital, I was, uh, found out very quickly, actually went back in my records not too long ago and, and looked at, try to actually capture my ketone levels. And, and in essence, what it's saying is, you know, you're, you're positive for, for ketone levels, because a lot of the, the tools uh, that we, you know, 
have um, are a lot more refined. You can literally do a finger stick for ketone bodies nowadays, but usually we're just looking, do you have presence of trace ketones in the urine? That was your way of, of looking at this. And, uh, you know, patients can go up beyond 10 millimolar in the context of diabetic ketoacidosis and, and, and sometimes north of that, maybe north of 15. And that it's more so the, the fact that ketone bodies outpace the bicarbonate buffering system within the body. So slow induction of this through a ketogenic diet or fasting, even which is quicker than a ketogenic diet, won't necessarily cause ketoacidosis because your body has capacity to buffer the acid load that comes with the ketones. So it's not the ketones themselves that are problematic per se. It is ultimately the hydrogen ion that makes it a keto acid that when released from the ketone body ultimately causes the acid in the blood to increase and your pH to drop. That becomes very toxic very quickly and ultimately uh, still even to today, although historically it was the primary cause of death for patients with this disease prior to the discovery of insulin. And even today, a large number of patients who go undiagnosed for type 1 diabetes because it might seem like the flu or the cold um, ultimately are in DKA. And if they don't know it and they don't correct it very quickly with insulin, uh, usually by going to the hospital, they will die. So um, it's, 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 a, it's a very, very short window and a very, very tight rope. And that's a very big difference between ketoacidosis and ketosis. And a lot of people, um, you know, when they are new to the keto world or um, new to ketone supplementations, they often get confused and people are like, oh, why, why do I want to be in ketosis? Because this is bad. And then, you know, we found that we, we needed to elaborate and, ex and explain what ketoacidosis versus ketosis is. So tell us a little bit more about how how does ketone or how does a keto diet help with uh, type 2 diabetes or even type 1 diabetes? Yeah, the, the, the general theory is, okay, it's as simple as you have higher glucose levels in the blood. So what if you reduce the most potent lifestyle factor of increasing glucose levels in the blood, which is carbohydrates? Uh, that is the case for, for diabetes. You know, it is uh, you drink a rapidly digested carbohydrate drink, you can vary and you test your glucose levels, you'll see this if you're wearing a CGM, uh, you'll see this, right? So um, no surprise there, very simple logic, you reduce that, you, you might improve this. But simultaneously, when you reduce carbohydrates and glucose load, you also are reducing the, the stimulus for producing more and more insulin. So you would in theory, reduce the, the primary impact on postprandial hyperglycemia, carbohydrates, and then as a result, maybe also lower insulin levels. Well, when people started actually implementing these diets in the context of obesity or even type 2 diabetes, patients were inadvertently losing weight. You know, when you talk about reducing carbohydrates, a lot of times that's the predominant form of food or calories in the diet. So just giving someone a simple instruction of saying, hey, reduce carbohydrates can often lead them to inadvertently lose weight. Uh, sometimes there have been studies that have observed that without necessarily prompting someone to lose weight when you just say, restrict carbohydrates, they, they do lose weight. You know, you're talking about the 60% of the grocery stores, typically in the center of the grocery store, you're moving. A lot of those can be processed. A lot of those can be hyperpalatable, which would only make that even more, um, you know, difficult to manage, let's say for weight or other reasons. But nonetheless, that's the logic behind it. And there's been a large number of studies that show that this dietary strategy, if you actually do it, that's, that's a, that's a, that's a different conversation about compliance and long-term sustainability of these things. But if you actually do it, it seems to be a very effective strategy for patients who undergo and implement these strategies. A large number of meta-analysis have, have shown this. So uh, it does seem effective for type two. Now, type one is a bit more, not a bit more, uh, way more controversial um, uh, around this. There have been zero randomized control trials on this diet greater than seven days. And this is um, quite ironic. Because when we look at the history of guidelines around uh, carbohydrate administration or lack thereof, back in the 1970s, this was actually standard of care. The therapeutic carbohydrate restriction was standard of care for both type 1 and type 2 diabetes. For type 1 diabetes, extended the life of patients in the absence of insulin because as you had more carbohydrates, you would exaggerate uh, glucose levels and exaggerate diabetic ketoacidosis. And that would put patients in a very, very acutely risky fatal situation. So just reducing that reduced that. Um, 
Now, in the 1920s was when insulin was discovered. You know, there was Jocelyn, a physician named Allen, and others who were actually doing carbohydrate restriction. Actually, where I'm at today, Samsung Diabetes Research Institute, was one of the first places in the United States, actually the first place in the United States, to both synthesize and then administer insulin. Um, not the first to administer in the United States, but the first to do both of those. And it was actually uh, in the 1920s, shortly after the discovery of insulin, that Actually, William Samson himself, who, here where I am today, was actually advocating for the shift away from low-carbohydrate diet to high-carbohydrate diet. The thinking was, and not just himself, but many others, hey, if you have insulin now, do you need to be so restrictive? And there were some signs that for some patients that would benefit some people just to have more of those type of um, nutrients in the diet. Now, over that time, all the way up to where we are today, uh, despite the you know, recommendations. In fact, the first guidelines were in the 1970s from the ADA describing that you should consume 45 cows of your diet from carbohydrates. In the 1980s, that elevated from 55 to 65% saying that that was healthier. As we move closer and closer to present time, the recommendation went to individualized approaches, largely from the evidence I was describing that shows that not just elevating carbohydrates is per se good, but actually the, the other end of the spectrum could be also very beneficial to patients. Um, but in the context of type 1 diabetes, there's a, a, a lack of that type of evidence. Um, unfortunately, despite it having become one of the most popular topics in this disease, uh, uh, if you actually look at Google Trends, I believe last year, I haven't done this recently, and you looked up type 1 diabetes disease and looked at worldwide trends over the last five years, um, that the ketogenic diet was, with, was the number one rising topic worldwide. And you, know, you have it as a rising topic. You see community groups who do this. Um, going higher and higher books, more publications are coming out, but you don't see guidelines uh, for these approaches. You don't see randomized controlled trials for these approaches, um, leaving an absence of the type of evidence that many endocrinologists, physicians, and, and people treating individuals with type 1 diabetes would hope to see before they can provide a recommendation. So patients often go rogue on these dietary strategies, but nonetheless, um, yeah, it's a very complicated story in the context of type 1 diabetes. Yeah, I mean, you pointed out a great point that, you know, nutrition and food, it's essentially, you, we are now starting to treat the root cause of, of these diseases, because more often than not, when we look at pharmaceuticals, we are looking at treatment of symptoms when people are already sick, they go to, you know, your healthcare provider, and uh, they, they get medication to treat um, the, the, the symptoms, essentially, uh, and even dialysis and, and kidney failures and all of that it's very late in the stage of, of disease progression. So let's go back to like the root. And I know, Andrew, you've got a, a wealth of knowledge around the historical perspective of, of the food um, industry and, and cardio metabolism, uh, metabolic impact there. Uh, could you tell us a little bit of, of what you know of how we have evolved to this point where suddenly chronic diseases, especially um, with regards to abundance of carbohydrates, just suddenly skyrocketed in the past, you know, how many decades? So um, one note there, you know, a lot of people don't, a lot of people can um, definitely make the argument for diabetes type two that um, dietary strategies uh, help in the lack of activity and genetics, amongst other factors lead to the development of type two. Um, there isn't much on that in type 1 diabetes, uh, although what's interesting is when people first find out they have type 1 diabetes, there's some case reports, and that evidence is a case report. It's not a randomized controlled trial long-term or anything like that that illustrate that patients do restrict carbohydrates. There's anecdotes of patients being able to extend their honeymoon period. So um, that's it, actually act under active investigation right now. Uh, um, and that's a kind of a sidebar. But nonetheless, when you start talking about the the history of diet over time, it goes through waves, right? There's, there's, and people would often call this fads, you know, because a fad here, there's the Mediterranean, there's the, the low fat, there's the dash, there's a, yeah. yeah. Okay. The ketogenic diet hit prime like two or three years ago. Um, so, it, you know, there's a, probably a social nature to this, of course, where people are looking for the, the thing that can help them because it's not like obesity is going away. It's not like type two diabetes is going away. These numbers are growing and growing in prevalence. Um, and not much has really been done to move the needle at a population level. Um, there's a lot of excitement around new drugs and pharmaceuticals like GLP-1s, um, pancreatins, about how effective they can be to help manage hunger and other the, the root, as you mentioned, the root causes of these diseases. That's certainly a contributor. But nonetheless, um, 
things go in cycles for scientific reasons. You know, you might find evidence on this domain. It's almost like the, the idea of the theory uh, and antithesis. You usually think thesis first, then someone produces the antithesis, and you kind of go back and forth along these lines. But uh, I think the evidence at this point largely points to the idea that removing away from the standard American diet, you know, someone uh, told me the other day, the sad American diet, <laughs> uh, SAD, um, uh, that's generally an improvement, you know? So if you, if there's actually evidence that directly compare low carbohydrate diets to uh, uh, low fat diets, and both can be effective in type two diabetes. I must give the context in type two diabetes, um, if you actually do them, you know, these direct comparisons, but many people will argue for the superiority of one or the other. And I think one thing, it's abundantly clear is the pillars of health are, are nutrition. So what that means for the general population is, is eating whole foods and, and not even over over consuming. And then there's uh, exercising and, and remaining active, uh, ideally, both aerobic and anaerobic exercise and sleep. And, and there's a bunch of other factors, but these are some of the key pillars of, of life and health for most people. Things become a little more complicated in the context of, of carbohydrates and type one diabetes, because in type one diabetes, you are essentially playing your own metabolic master. Like you're the metabolic kingpin of your own metabolism. You have the most powerful hormone in the body and you are controlling what's going to happen with that in relation to feedback on your glucose levels or anticipation of what's going to happen with your glucose based on the food you ate, the exercise you're about to embark on, or the 40 other factors or more that interact to change insulin sensitivity every single day usually at different points in different amounts throughout the day, you know, circadian biology, uh, activity, insulin sensitivity, all these things. But why that becomes much more complicated in type one diabetes is because the current tools and medications applied for this disease are limited. The fastest insulin, and this really comes down to the kinetics differential between foods and the insulins available. So let's say you went, let's say we both went, you know, you're in San Francisco, I'm in Santa Barbara, we both meet, hang out, and we said, okay, we're going to go to a donut shop, okay, we're going to go have donuts, and I go in, I said, okay, I want, I don't know, let's say 70 grams of, of let's do 75 grams, let's do an Oracle's tolerance yeah, test exactly. of donuts, and uh, you do the same thing, right, so let's say you consume that, um, that well, your body is going to see, as it's being digested, the elevation in glucose, your pancreatic beta cells are going to see this elevation, um, within the cell, what actually causes a metabolic cascade that ultimately releases insulin insulinly into the hepatic portal vein. Instantly, your body is starting to store that as glycogen. Instantly, it's going to the periphery and being used in the muscle and adipose tissue for future energy needs. For me, as I consume that, it's going in my body just as quick as yours. The main difference here, Lat, is that the quickest insulin I currently have available to me is going to take minutes that's oftentimes up to 15 minutes to onset, okay, from the injection, even if I try to get it in the muscle, like I, even, but usually it's in the fat. Mm -hmm. So we're talking about 15 minutes before it even really starts to saturate the blood. Then you usually have a kinetic curve of about an hour before it hits its peak. And it takes another hour before it really starts getting most of it out of your system clearance. Okay. So you're talking about a two hour time frame. Whereas for you, you might see that if that's all you get was that donut, you might see that cleared. Um, very, very rapidly. Um, yeah, about, it depends on a number of factors, but let's say, let's just throw that number out there where for me, the quickest that's going to happen is two hours. So as a result, the, the, if I ate something like that, I might go up very rapidly and come back to, uh, very rapidly, but I stay high because I have to wait for that insulin to get in my systems to bring it down. The only thing else I could do is let's say I, I, I prolong that donut absorption in, in eating over a two hour period. You know, who does that? You know, not many people, they eat their meal all in one sitting and they move on. So in short, at least the, not a donut. <laughs> uh, that's correct, lad. Most people do not. Uh, the self-control would be so impressive. Uh, that could be its own study, right? There's an Oreo experiment that people did where you, or a marshmallow experiment with kids. I forget the exact context or what happened, but in essence, you gave them the option to take it uh, or leave it, but giving them the guarantee they'd have a future, uh, uh, more abundance than most just took it, right? Because that impulse. Either way, um, I might have butched that experiment uh, completely, but nonetheless, yes, it takes some serious self-control. Um, but because of that mismatch uh, between the most predominant form of energy in the diet, which is carbohydrates, um, and our current tools and strategies to manage um, glycemia, uh, which are the insulins that you are taking uh, often hours to work, um, 
it's it's a clear mismatch, which often leads patients on a roller coaster. What if you take your insulin a little bit earlier because you know the time it takes to circulate your body? If you take it earlier, would that make a difference? It does. So when patients actually, uh, so that is a common technique that people do administer. But let me let me throw a wrench into things here, Lat. So okay. here's why that's not always reliable. Let's say that we go to that donut restaurant, Lat, and we're like, oh, this is, I can't wait to eat this. I, I already pre-injected my insulin, Lat, before we even arrived mm -hmm. um, at the donut restaurant. Oh, wait, traffic hit. Oh, wait, you're, you've got a flat tire. Oh no, now Andrew's going hypo and I have nothing to correct it. So if you don't know you're going to be able to consume that and you preload that and you take it, you're taking one of the, you're injecting one of the most deadliest hormones in the body with a light, like over 90% chance you're going to eat that food within that period of time. But there is the chance that it, that doesn't happen. What happens when that happens? You are essentially playing a very risky game and so a lot of and it's also difficult you know like every single meal you're going to preempt that I means the level of the level of decision making and overload that people with type 1 diabetes have to do to try to get closer and closer to their target which frankly everyone wants to be as normal as possible you want this disease to have as little impact on your life as possible you want it to not affect uh, your family your peers your your cognitive performance your physical performance you want it you want you know you, when you get diagnosed you want to be just like you know, I get diagnosed, I want to be just like Lat. You know, I want to be just like him. Um, I don't want to, I don't want to have to deal with all the extra burdens and, and nuance that comes along with this. It has been estimated that about 180 additional decisions, health-related decisions are made per day with someone with type 1 diabetes compared to someone else. And these numbers are ranged in different values, but that's a pretty consistently thrown out number. So it's it's quite the burden to try to manage those things. Yes, these are a number of tricks and tools that every patient does. Uh, it's very individualized, but it is also very, very difficult to guarantee it because one IU one day could be a completely different impact for one IU the very next day, even if it's the same food. What do you slept different that night? What if you had slightly different physical activity because you walked around more in the morning? There's all these factors that play into ultimately what that end product is going to be. And it often becomes very unpredictable. In fact, if one of the most predictable things uh, is that it will be unpredictable in the context of type 1 diabetes. And that's what is not appreciated. If I can teach anyone anything today is that in type 1 diabetes, where you have complete insight into your glycemic control, you're monitoring with the CGM if you're lucky enough to have one, three-fourths of the population does, at least in the United States. And then you also have the ability to actually calculate the amount of insulin you, you administer at every single meal of every single day. You can quantify total insulin load, uh, the amount of glucose response to foods. You can see everything in your metabolism, at least the kings in metabolism, which are glucose, I argue glucose, and ultimately insulin. Um, there's obviously other factors like lipids, amino acids, otherwise, but these are the ones that we focus on for diagnosis, diabetes, and management of this disease. So um, with all that resolution, you can appreciate the multitude of factors that ultimately go into changing your metabolism every single day. And hence why there's the, when people started having the tools and ability to, to appreciate how powerful metabolism was in health disease and performance, particularly in disease recently, uh, I think most people know that if I consume a certain diet, it'll impact, um, you know, my performance, at least in, in athletic worlds, that's common knowledge, or at least common dogmatic belief. Um, but in the context of disease, it was a little less appreciated. And I think now that appreciation has been overwhelmingly appreciated. And that's why we see such an expansion in the interest of nutrition or things that help uh, augment nutrition uh, now. Nice. So, you know, I get to interview all these doctors, scientists, and cool people in this health and fitness industry, all made possible because of this podcast that is funded by the company I work for, which is Health Via Modern Nutrition or HVMN. And it is not that they pay me to do this, but I genuinely love and believe in the product Ketone IQ. I use it every day before my podcast, before my workout, or even after my workout for recovery. There hasn't been a single supplement that can give me such a drastic change in subjective feel within minutes as much as Ketone IQ has. For those of you who do not know me, I'm from Malaysia, I got my PhD from the UK, and my passion is in science and chronic diseases, and I believe it is all about transparency, scientific integrity, and about sharing with everyone so that everyone can benefit from it. And if you like this content and our work, please do support us by liking, leaving a review, or sharing with your friends and families, or even buying a shot of Ketone IQ at any Sprouts nationwide in the US, and the first shot is on us. Just scan the QR code and you'll get your money back for your first shot. 
You can also use the code HVMNPOD20, that is H-V-M-N-P-O-D 20, and get 20% off your first purchase at the HVMN website. Um, most cases of type 2 diabetes, they're associated with also obesity, but that's not the case with type 1 diabetes. So my, my expertise was in type 2 diabetes. So a lot of people on my social media and uh, podcasts and comments, they ask, okay, you know, as a type 2 diabetic, what do I do to reverse my insulin resistance or increase my insulin sensitivity? And most of the time, you know, we have seen so many studies that exercise have shown to increase insulin sensitivity um, and also training your body to, to really tap into the fat storage. The different types of endurance exercise that cardio zone 2 is really effective to tap into your, your um, fat storage and to be more fat adapted. And then there was one comment actually recently, I think, I believe last week, somebody asked on my comment, how does that work for type one diabetes? And I, I didn't, you know, I had to look into it. And, and since we have an expert here today, um, how does a type one diabetic train their body to burn fat more efficiently or train their body to increase their insulin sensitivity? Is it the same way or is it something different? That's a very interesting question. And there's not a ton, there's some research on that, but not a ton. Most of that research that I'm familiar with has focused on the different types of insulin and their impact on your ability to shift from like glycolytic metabolism to fat-based metabolism. Clearly, we know that from outside of type 1 diabetes that you can shift um, nutrients or uh, what you give your body and your body will shift what it's burning, right? So you, you feed what you want it to burn, right? And so, um, but you asked more specifically about exercise. There is some evidence that obviously people with type 2 diabetes um, and, and that ultimately have uh, some resistance to be able to adapt or respond through, you know, let's say fat oxidation or getting into fat oxidation compared to someone without it. Um, but in the context of type 1 diabetes, it's a bit more complicated and a little less, not a little, like a lot less studied. Uh, it's something that actually needs to be better studied. We know that most of the investigations in type 1 diabetes are often confounded by you know, patients where they are glycemically, right? So in type one diabetes, most patients, when they're studied, especially during exercise to keep it safe, they're often running very, very high, you know, severe hypoglycemia is um, usually where most people are, unless you can clamp glucose using advanced clinical physiology techniques. Uh, outside of that, you're always confounded by that kind of the presence of glucose, and that can induce things like glucose toxicity and other factors, which really make it difficult to just isolate out a specific variable as the cause or effect of changes in carbohydrate or fat oxidation during exercise. So it's a lot less studied. Lat is the, the quick answer, um, but one could deduce an answer from looking outside of type one diabetes. We would suspect that because in type one diabetes you have, well, let's, let's talk about the general population, how they respond. One of the most, frankly, the most robust way to change fat oxidation is to change your diet. So um, we know that we had a recent analysis uh, published in Frontiers um, of Clinical Nutrition, and that looked at two different populations, both um, uh, competitive athletes and runners who were very fit, high to VO2 max. Um, they both underwent, underwent four weeks of a high-carb diet and then switched over to a low-carb diet, kept calories the same, body composition the same, um, try to control as much as we can, activity levels. Um, and those in the uh, uh, low-fat group actually produced some of the highest fat oxidation rates um, ever recorded, uh, uh, actually during exercise. And so what this illustrates is that obviously diet is very powerful. We're not the first to show this. In fact, has been studied for a very, very long period of time. Uh, so diet can be impactful, obviously also engaging in long duration exercise, which, you know, uh, also can help promote more fat oxidation. It's one thing that people focus on in endurance exercise is to increase the amount of fat ox or F-A-T-O-X is what you see the terminology often on at Twitter, X, how you want to put it, increasing fat ox um, as a means because it's been associated with improved performance. It does seem that people who perform better in, in long duration exercise seem to have higher, higher fat oxidation. So diet can matter. Obviously, training can matter. Um, uh, doing more of uh, training can matter. But I want to provide a couple of context dependent situation or Context that are important for type one. One, obviously, most patients are hyperglycemia during this period of time, for, just for safety reasons. Because if you dip, because you have insulin on board or other factors, you can go down quickly, and then you're it, you nothing worse than having hypoglycemia during exercise. No, no better way to guarantee you have reduced performance or feel terrible during exercise. Um, you know, and just to give a context for this for patients who don't realize it, if you 
if you don't fast regularly, you don't engage on a low carbohydrate diet, but you eat a very high carbohydrate diet, multiple meals per day. And all of a sudden you just didn't eat all day, Like don't eat all day. And at the very end of the day, at some point within that day, you'll feel shaky, sweaty, irritable, like, uh, you know, lad asked me a question. I'm like, uh, you know, I'm angry. I don't want to I snap back at them. You know, you know, I, I could eat a horse, you know, these comments, right? That's what hypo, that's like symptoms of hypoglycemia. Um, it's well, well, well appreciated, but patients not only have the context of higher glucose levels, which confounds, you know, understanding what's happening in physiology uh, during exercise, but you also have um, longer acting insulins on board, which clearly have implications for your ability to tap into certain substrate use. Insulin is one of the most powerful ways, even subtle amounts of insulin are one of the most powerful ways to shut down um, uh, enzymatic machinery within the body for increasing fat oxidation, both lipolysis and ultimately uh, things like ketogenesis in the liver, uh, subtle amounts of insulin at the liver can shut that down pretty quickly. Um, so these factors do matter and they do play a role. And I think it's a, a underappreciated and understudied area. But one thing I want to describe to patients is recently came out last week. There was a beautiful clinical physiology study that was published just looking at patients who were clamped. So these clamps are ways clinical physiology techniques and research where you can actually set um, glucose levels at a set level and you, and you just modulate um, uh, insulin as a result and you can keep glucose stable the entire time. What they did is it compared patients with type 1 diabetes clamped at 100 and then at 160. And 160 is lower than a lot of people would even want to be during exercise because they're afraid if they go down, they can go down well over 60 points sometimes within a short period of time. And so and just did. for clarification as well, when you when you say clamp for people who are not used to, you know, physiology sort of experiments, could you explain a little bit on how, how does a clamp work and how, how do you maintain that um, constant level of glucose? So the, a lot of these techniques, the simplest way to put it for people is the, I, the, the clamp, the term clamp just means you're, you're setting it at a specific level. These are uh, techniques to allow you, say you wanted to do a, 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 an insulin clamp. Well, it's just, it's ways of utilizing these techniques to allow you to set or clamp at a certain level. It could be at a certain level of insulin, could be a certain level of glucose. Um, and this gives you insight. Let's say you clamp glucose levels at a hundred. Well, a patient with type two diabetes may require way more insulin to dispose or keep their, their glucose levels stable at that level compared to someone else. So that elevation in basal insulin needs um, can obviously allude to the idea of more resistance to that insulin where someone otherwise doesn't, right? So that's just the simplest term. It's a way of clamping um, important metrics, particularly glucose in the body. Now, in this experiment, they clamped glucose at 100 and then 160. Now 160, again, just being below where most people would even typically be with type one. Um, and they still saw signs of dysfunction, altered metabolic uh, uh, responses to exercise. So patients with type 1 diabetes, even from going from 100 to 160 during exercise, uh, dampened lactate clearance. So the authors describe this as a means by which patients with type 1 diabetes may hit lactate threshold quicker, because if you're dampening the clearance, you would expect lactate to potentially accumulate quicker and quicker. So we know that these factors do matter. So we know that exercise, nutrition are key factors, but we also know that there's individual components of type 1 diabetes that are different and have to be accounted for when interpreting that evidence. So it's harder to do these experiments and it's also less evidence in that domain, but a clear area that needs to be explored. Yeah. Um, thank you for that, for the explanation. So, you know, one of the hottest topic, and, and we touched uh, about this earlier, um, GLP-1. Um, I want to hear your thoughts around GLP-1, and I know it's a very powerful drug to treat um, diabetes, but people are also using it for weight loss and whatnot. I, I just want to hear your thought as, uh, you know, an expert, as a scientist, what do you think of that drug and where do you think the future um, holds for, for, for the application of that drug? Um, well, I think the the short and simple of that is that there, the evidence has been some of the most rigorously done evidence, and it shows incredibly powerful effects in diseases such as obesity, which have largely been very, very hard to manage over time. So with these drugs, there's many studies that have shown that there's a, a benefit higher and higher doses, although the, the benefit isn't like linear. It's kind of a, a slope, right? As you go higher and higher, you start to see this uh, decrement in the amount of amplitude of the effect. 
of that drug, but nonetheless, they're ridiculously effective. Um, and we know the implications of diseases like obesity or type 2 diabetes on long-term outcomes in patients. You know, we would expect that patients with type 2 diabetes would live uh, anywhere between 6 to 14 years shorter life expectancy, the number one cause of death in type 2. And also type 1 is cardiovascular disease. So really, just having another tool in the toolbox to help improve outcomes is a clear win for patients living with this disease. One of the root causes of these diseases, I think it's well appreciated, is um, the neurobiology of hunger and having ways or means to dampen that response to help pay people on their journey. Let's say, hey, I want to do... Hey, let's say that we talked about a low carbohydrate diet earlier. We could talk about Mediterranean or anything. Let's say you wanted to do a new diet that you heard could be help, helpful. And there's lots of evidence to support its utility. But as you go into the journey, you have a really hard time. Maybe you are more predisposed to being more hungry, less satiated to the, the meals you eat. Well, a lot of people look at that and say, work harder. But the truth is that they are often working hard, it, it, often harder than you, right? Like much, much harder than other people. And as a result, having tools that help improve their ability to achieve the same thing and lowering the threshold to completing that is important. Let's say that lat, you're like, Hey, I want to exercise and I want to lift weights, but the closest gym to me is an hour away. Well, that's going to be hard, right? So like, uh, it's gonna be real difficult to get to that gym and lift weights. You might have to find some other creative means, but you might not be able to accomplish everything you want. Well, imagine someone builds a gym right across the street from your home. All of a sudden your access to that is much lower. The barriers to getting there and completing your goal are much lower. So a lot of times people use these as they're, they're not a fix all, by the way. Um, you know, patients still have to change their diet. They still have to, you know, do the work. It just makes the work potentially much less burdensome. The, the willpower reduced, you know, I mean, essentially giving people a better option. And that's how I look at it. Um, yeah. I know that I, I had obesity when I was a kid. Okay. So I had obesity, um, I was over 30 um, kgs per meter squared. You know, I, I fit the, the definition of, of obesity. Um, and I remember that struggle. And look at you now. And yeah, everyone wants to be you. You're just ripped. <laughs> uh, I, all jokes aside, like I, it, was a, it was a hell of a struggle. I remember many, many times where I was thinking, man, is there's nothing I can do? I remember looking at these these, these labels on, uh, and thinking, oh, like, you know, weight loss pill, this and that. I mean, I was a kid and I wanted to do this. Like, I'm like, I just want anything to help me. Cause this is not easy. Like it's super hard. I had failed for like five years. Um, I was finally successful, but it was not easy. It was a hell of a journey. Frankly, I'm very grateful for it. It's usually the hardest things in life that produce, um, the best outcomes after the fact. So I'm very grateful for that experience. Uh, Honestly, because it gave me greater context, it ultimately led to me speaking to you here today, Lat. What tools um, did you use, you know, for your, for your own? Let, let's talk a little bit about that personal journey. I, I think that's important for us to acknowledge, you know, how far you've come, how much you've achieved, but also um, just learn, you know, let us learn from what you've learned. When I had obesity as a kid, um, I remember looking back at pictures and trying to figure out like when this happened for me. And it was like my family was at avid exercise was we ate what you think would be healthy. But obviously we ate more uh, than uh, maybe we should have uh, ultimately to maintain weight. Um, I, at that time, I was also very, very active as a kid. Uh, I used to play football and all sorts of sports, ride bikes all the time with my friends. Um, but there was a point where I stopped being as active. There's things like video games that got introduced during my generation, right? It was like, you know, but you don't really play video games running. You play them usually sitting down and doing nothing. And that could take a lot of your time. Uh, and there's also this shift away from healthier forms of foods to like less healthy forms of food. It's not like every cafeteria food is the best food on earth. So, um, you know, didn't always bring a lunch per se. Wasn't always eating like carrots and celery or something, you know, either way. So that was, uh, I remember, I think I was, I remember in middle school, I was, very happy. I remember looking back at those pictures. I just didn't look very happy. Um, a lot of that was because of self-esteem issues. It was self-esteem related to how I looked, um, how I felt that Im Im impacted where I was in society with my peers and otherwise. And so, you know, that, that took a toll and it takes a toll on a lot of kids more nowadays than ever, right? There's a higher amount of kids who are experiencing and struggling with these issues. I tried everything. I tried exercising. I tried, 
uh, changing my diet. The problem is that most of these approaches, when you go into them, you go so motivated, like, oh, I'm so tired of feeling this way. I want to change it. And you just dive. But the problem is that when you just dive over the edge, um, you could always like revert at any second, right? That fridge is still there full of the same foods, you know, like all these things, like you can just stop exercising. You can just go sit down. Like it's so easy to just go backwards. So you have to maintain such a level of focus and willpower. That's often easy to let go of. And that's often what happened. You know, I try our approach for a period of time and I might lose some weight, but I was so miserable, you know, that it wasn't, it wasn't sustainable. It wasn't maintainable. And really the one thing that really changed everything for me was no specific diet. It was actually working with someone who helped keep me accountable on my journey. You know, I think it was also, I can't ignore the impact that I was so tired of it, that I, I was, I really was motivated to do something. I, in my mindset, I was like, this is my last shot. I'm going to give it everything I got, or I'm just going to stop trying. And so, um, I hired someone to help me. We, I met with them on a, on a weekly basis. No, like amazing special. It wasn't like lat PhD in physiology from Oxford, right? It was like a, a gentleman who had helped other people lose weight. It was just keeping them accountable. coach. And it worked. You know, I walked 30 minutes every day, just reduced my total caloric intake, nothing super fancy, tried to eat healthier foods, kept, kept that stable. And over time, it just came off. Tune, tune, tune. I was like 260 pounds, I think. Um, not jacked, by the way. Definitely not jacked 260. And um came down to around 222.15. And I, I stayed there for about a year. I was like, man, I feel so much better. And then that's like, that's when it clicked for me. And I, I never looked back. I stayed active all the time. I tried to eat super healthy because it was that learned experience of how impactful it could be, the nutrition and exercise could be and helping me feel better. Because as a result of losing weight, now you feel better. It's not just, just not it's your social interaction. Like I don't, I don't, I can now exercise and it's easier. You know, I'm not exhausted all the time. I feel better. And then there's also the benefits of why I did in the first place, which was clearly all superficial, you know, yeah. Yeah. Uh, at that time, you know, as a younger age. But ironically, um, so it gave me a profound appreciation for these factors. But a year later, completely independent of this weight loss, um, I get diagnosed with type one. And so the impact of metabolism, nutrition, and ultimately managing and, and uh, like just it basically made nutrition and exercise and understanding my metabolism an unavoidable choice. Like people with type 1 diabetes have to become, in essence, semi-experts in metabolism. Because if you're not or you don't care, it makes it extremely difficult to manage what is often a 24-7 disease. There is like no off switch for this disease. You are truly managing every day. I went, I went for, for example, you know, as much as I do and as much as I know about the disease, I still went for a run this morning. And normally during the morning, and I have coffee, a little bit of uh, coconut cream, um, and went for a run. Normally, I'd be totally fine. At the end of that run, tank down. And so, you know, that wasn't what normally happens. But this 10% of the time, this is what does happen. And so, hey, it still happens. It's not like I'm getting a free pass all the time. I've done a lot of things to make it a lot easier, more consistently. But the, you're still on the wave. I might not be on an, a, a mountain-sized wave. A roller coaster, so to speak. I might be on little bumps, but you still you still got bumps in the road you got to deal with. So, my journey with obesity and ultimately type one diabetes made what became eighty percent of my thoughts every single day into a career. <laughs> and you know, I got to do something I love every single day because I would do this anyways. This is what I spend my time doing, I thinking about, and I loving. Um, and so, I feel pretty lucky. Exactly. If you're good at something, you might as well get paid for it. If you can, absolutely. That's a, <laughs> if you can be a millionaire, lad, you should might as well do it. Uh, yeah, I'll jump exactly. aside. No, a hundred percent. I am a big believer that if everyone woke up every single day and were super yoked about their career and love what they did, it doesn't matter. Like you could be the president of the United States. You could be waiting tables. You could be um, a physician. You could be, it could be anything, right? Yeah. If you love it, you can tell, you can walk in that room and meet that person and say, damn, I love being around that person. They got, they got something in them. I feel good being around. So, that, you know, yeah. that's how I feel today when I wake up. I honestly, um, I was very excited for today because I'm speaking to you. Right after this, I'm speaking to Chris Irvin, also on, for the podcast on Keto Diet, on his new book. And then right after this, I'm going to do the first ever VO2 max test. I'm going to die doing it, but I, I'm going to look forward to it. And because I have such a packed day, I, I won't have time to like cook and meal prep. I actually meal prep last night. I never do that. I usually cook on the day itself. So um, it's one of those days that I'm like, I'm excited about 
my job and what I do and what I can find out from experts like yourself and learn, you know, to, to be a better scientist, to be a better physiologist, to be a better content creator, and then share the knowledge. I think that's, that's, that for me is what motivates me is to be able to share it with people who may not have the privilege to learn what we do um, and to learn what we know about type 1 and versus type 2 diabetes, ketoacidosis versus ketosis, um, ketones, proteins, fats. And speaking of protein, actually, what are your thoughts about protein intake? Like, it's a very underrated uh, macronutrient that a lot of people are under-eating. You know, like, I think Dr. Gabrielle Lyon, she always says we don't have a, an obesity problem, we have a, a, a lack of protein problem or something like that. So, so what are your thoughts around protein when it comes to type 1 and 2 diabetes? I want to first give you some credit, Lat. You're looking very svelte and very jacked, okay? Um, so I, I, don't know if, I don't know if you're public about this, but I'm just going to call you out right now. I know you've been on your own personal journey, yes. and you're looking great, man. So props yeah. to you for that. Um, yeah, protein, I... Uh, I'm a, I'm a bias in this respect. After I had, you know, gone through the journey of losing weight, I wanted to be the, you know, a giant bodybuilder, biggest, strongest, fastest person on earth. So, you know, when you go that journey, protein is like the hyper focus of muscle building for athletes, usually on the strength building, muscle building realm. But yeah, when you talk about context of a lot of diets, you know, it is actually, let's talk about low carb for a second, kind of melds what we're talking about before to this. Oftentimes when people go low carb, they inadvertently elevate protein intake also. And so a lot of people have hypothesized that that's at least in part contributing to some of the benefits because protein has been shown to be satiating, higher protein intake has been shown to uh, be beneficial to muscle mass uh, in individuals. Um, and there's been a lot of investigations over time, uh, anyway, anywhere from um, Don Lehman, Stu Phillips, uh, uh, Rob Wolf, you know, that's, that's a real OG legend in this space. Um, and uh, Mike Ormsby, a lot of people working in this domain. Um, there's a really cool study recently that looked at, you know, kinetics of protein that has got a lot of interest. But nonetheless, it, protein is a macronutrient that can have a lot of benefits if you disproportionately shift from, let's say, carbohydrates and fat, which are often viewed by many people as energetic substrates to something like protein. They're much more than just energy, by the way. I don't want to oversimplify this, but um, protein is, a, is a, an important nutrient for uh muscle it's an important nutrient for many uh components or aspects of the body and yeah if you if you have a choice to consume more of something uh versus another protein is usually the one people want to opt for and one example of that is actually when you look at studies where there's a hypocaloric diet so these are very very low calorie diets they're very very effective so they're actually around 500 calories a day give or take some studies may differ on that but ultimately, these, these diets on these hypercaloric diets are very high in protein. The reason being is because it's so essential to have minimum essential amounts of protein to maintain things like muscle mass during diets, um, to recover from things like exercise, or to augment the muscle protein synthetic response to exercise. So yeah, no, protein is really important. I wouldn't go so far as to say that uh, it's a protein-specific problem. Protein is important. Um, but all of these components play into a very complex picture uh, on a disease level. And then when you get to the individual level, it becomes even more complex. And, um, but yeah, shifting towards that seems like on average, the evidence seems to definitely support that for maintaining uh, muscle mass and helping support uh, muscle mass during weight loss. Yeah. Um, and, you know, not to forget as well as you become more active and especially if you do strength training, protein will be essential for recovery as well as building that, um, muscle mass to adapt to a progressive load that hopefully you will want to achieve as you progress further. Um, because you know, the body, dys body dysmorphia is real, right? Like the, 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 the more muscle you put on, the more you want. And, um, yeah, I no, thank you for your kind words as well. Um, I am on, on my own personal journey. I think that's the beauty of it. I, I get to do it myself and use myself as an experiment and then share whatever insights that I found. So I plan to do this as part of my content. It's just, you know, I have been wanting to do this for the past two months to really like talk about my, my own journey. But I, 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 every time I want to do it, I'm like, oh my God, that's so cringe. So I'm, I'm, I still have to do it. Uh, I just don't know how, like how to and the tone and all that. But hopefully um, soon uh, I'll, be, I'll be saying that. I'll be well, let me, let me give you a out. piece of advice that someone gave me that I really appreciated. Um, and I hope he's comfortable with me sharing this. Is a, uh, but I had debated for a long time about like social media and whether I should do it. In fact, I hated it, hated everything about it. I thought it was, you know, the cesspool 
of of our existence. And uh, what I what I often realize is that if you want to reach people, and oftentimes people are on, on there looking for materials. Yes, it predisposes people to negative content, extreme materials, and stuff like that. But you can choose. Uh, if you're exposed to that on more frequently than not, you can choose uh, what you put out there. And I think it's important for someone like you, Lat. It's not almost sometimes not always about you, right? Sometimes it's about the people who are watching you experience very uh, transparently your journey. That's why probably people may appreciate it. They may, if it's the first time they've ever heard of Andrew Kudnick or whatever, um, they may not appreciate that I didn't really post very much for for a very long period of time. It's only this last year that I really started doing that because my mission in life is to improve outcomes of people living with my disease and related metabolic diseases. And I know that I will diminish my ability to make that impact if I don't speak up, speak out and share my own personal journey, as well as what we know about the research um, as much as possible. You know, I, I did a TED talk and I remember being terrified of the implications that would have on people viewing me like, okay, it was on, it was on carbohydrate restriction and type one diabetes. I thought I had done it for 10 years, not at that point, but I, and at this point I've done it for over 10 years. I thought, man, you know, this is so controversial. People are going to look at me and think, oh, this low-carb Andrew, you know, there's a guy, he's low-carb, you know, and I've had that. I've had people introduce me in academic research talks as not a researcher, but a low-carb advocate. That's what they called me. Wow. And um, I was like, oh, wow. Okay. But that's that comes with the territory, man. Like it isn't, it was never my goal for that to be the case. It's just understand what works and how to help people. But the reality is that it's, it's often not about you. It's often about what you can do to help other people. And you have a lot to share. In fact, a lot of people who are listening have the same opportunity and don't appreciate it or may not be willing to take that first step. Um, but oftentimes you have to do it scared. Uh, and, you know, and ultimately, I think it's, it's if you're willing to and able to, you, have, you personally have a tremendous amount to share with other people through your knowledge. Um, and so I encourage you to do so. In fact, most of us are often looking for someone just like that. Someone who's transparent, who shares vulnerably who they are. It feels feels like you're getting something very real from them. And then oftentimes you can look at your own life and think, man, that happens to me too. People are very afraid to do that because they think, man, I'm not as good as this person over here who's only sharing their highlight reels, lat. And so it's it leads to this vulnerability of this. It's very superficial, uh, yeah. but authenticity, I think, is, is super important. We're all not we're all vulnerable to it. Don't get me wrong. You know but, that's yeah. so true because part of me is like, oh, I should share it when I have good results. You know, when I'm going through the journey, I I, I shouldn't share it because what if I fail? Do you know, there's always that fear. And what you do is right. And and do you know what? Like, it's okay if I fail because everyone goes through that. You know, we fail so many times before we succeed. And most people on social media, they only share their success stories. And that's not realistic and it's not that relatable and it's not that vulnerable and it's not that human at the end of the day. But our perception is swapped because of the biasness that people share. So thank you for the encouragement. I, I shall do that maybe today. There you go, Lat. So everyone's going to see Lat killing it and being super vulnerable and transparent with his journey. He just said it right here. So if he doesn't, you know, obviously you can call him out. Um, <laughs> either way, you know, no, we don't want to shame anyone here, but you know, I yeah, know. It's, it's important to, yeah. You know. Thank you. No. Um, so, you know, where do you think, so what, okay, two questions. One is what are the current research that you're very excited about that's coming out soon? And where do you think the direction is going to and where do you hope it's going to? Yeah. So the, I had alluded to this earlier that when we talk about something like the disease I have in type one diabetes, that despite there being a controversy for frankly over a hundred years and recommendations being thrown around by even governing bodies about how much you should or shouldn't consume, there are no randomized controlled trials really determining the efficacy of whether you should consume, let's say 50 grams of carbs per day or 350 grams of carbs per day. That hasn't been determined and we don't have that evidence. Um, and we have a lot of examples of how powerful that can be. But that's a clear area of deficiency that requires some uh, serious research, not only to see its, its uh, safety, efficacy, and ultimately future effectiveness, um, but also to determine, like, is there anything wrong? Because as a result, we want to find ways to improve or overcome that um, or understand context for each individual. But a lot of that revolves around that because not many people are interested in this. It's a very controversial space. No one wants to throw their hat into this ring, but um, we are doing a number of studies along this front to try to understand what is happening in a very controlled setting in these environments. Um, and we will be uh, 
hopefully soon sharing some some pretty impactful data looking at um, a, a systematic analysis uh, and uh, meta-analysis of all studies ever looking at the impact of carbohydrates in the context of type 1 diabetes across key cardiometabolic outcomes. And I think that will be very important because we don't really have context for what's happening across the spectrum. Most of these analysis um, are in type 2, and there's not a ton in type 2, there's some in type 2. And in type 1, there's almost a complete absence minus little pockets of specialized epidemiological assessments of around 300 people. Well, this analysis includes almost 46,000 patients with type 1 diabetes, all the way from 12 grams, all the way up to north of 450 grams per day. So I'm pretty excited when we actually get to the point of finalizing all components of that and ultimately uh, sharing the data on that. Another key component is we one absence of our appreciation of this field is because of the absence of, of funding for these type of studies. And, uh, you know, we are actually conducting right now a survey um, with University of British Columbia, um, Anna Lynn uh, Conklin, uh, Jim Johnson, and also Sean McClever from Institute of Personalized Therapy and Nutrition, um, all working together to try to survey from patients themselves, what do they think is important? Like, what do you think is important? Is, is you know, is nutrition an important component in your life? Um, is it something that warrants greater research, not just from like researchers who tell you like, oh, this is what's important based on the prior evidence. No, like the lived experience of a patient pushing and saying, no, 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 like these things do or don't matter to me. And so that's something that uh, if, if any patient or individual living with type 1 diabetes uh, is interested in that, you can actually go to my Twitter 